This is after Habakkuk's complaint. The Lord responds, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the land to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go before them, or sorry, go forth from themselves. Uh, Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would work this morning, helping us to understand your word, to believe your word, and to act upon your word. We ask that you would break any hard hearts that are amongst us, that you would be healing all broken hearts among us. Work by your word and by your spirit to do these unexpected things. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Back in 1966, they, uh, there's a comedy that was released of the by the title, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. It's not what you would expect from the 1960s with regard to the Russians, because that was our enemy. These were the people that we were afraid of. Uh, Similar to that earlier cry, the British are coming, the British are coming. It's not intended to be a good thing. But it tells the story of a Russian sub that is off the coast of New England and uh, I think the made-up island of Gloucester Island because I've never heard of it um, as someone from that region. But anyway, it, it, the submarine runs aground and the sailors come up onto the land in order to try and get a boat to push their submarine and free it. Of course, they can't tell anyone we're the Russians. So they have to sneak about as they try to do this uh, before the day gets uh, too far. And uh, of course they are discovered and then that's when it all gets crazy and uh, strange because everyone assumes the worst about what is actually going to happen. And so in many ways it sort of made fun of uh, some people's Cold War fears. Uh, it, It helped to sort of humanize the Russian people, not necessarily the Russian government, uh, but the Russian people, that they were normal just like us. How does this fit? Well, we'll see how this fits. (laughs) We see that Habakkuk has complained that God did nothing with regard to the injustice that he saw in his own community, in his own nation. Was Habakkuk's complaint valid And we'll see how this plays out. God responds to Habakkuk's complaint. What's interesting about God's response to Habakkuk's complaint is that he's not responding simply to Habakkuk. 
because it's now second person plural. He's responding not simply to Habakkuk, but he's also uh, responding to the entire nation of Judah. So uh, that's not as easily uh, seen in the English, but that's what's happening in the Hebrew. And his response is initially four commands that he has for Israel. And they're sort of related to one another in some sense. It's look, see, and probably a better translation would be astounded, be astounded which is sort of an odd sort of uh, thing that we don't say in English. And that's probably why the translators of the ESV put it as wonder and be astonished. But it's the same Hebrew word in both instances. So just in a different tense. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves because if you paid attention in our reading of Acts 13, you noticed a difference between what Paul said from Habakkuk chapter 1 and what we just read in Habakkuk chapter 1. There is a textual problem that exists. The ESV and many other translations with regard to what you see in Habakkuk 1 follow what's called the Masoretic text. It's the old Hebrew texts. Whereas what Paul says in Acts 13 and the translations that follow it is taken more from the Jewish, uh, sorry, the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. Why are they different? Why is it look at the nations versus look, you scoffers? Well, it really gets down to vowel points. If you remember, uh, vowel points were not in the originals. And so uh, there's a sense in which you're trusting God a lot. <laughs> And so the Masoretic text follows one understanding of how to put the vowels in that, and the Septuagint follows another understanding of how to put the vowels in that. And so you come with these slightly different uh, translations of this particular phrase. Is it looking among the nations, or is it something where it's a rebuke that's implied? Look, you people who are scoffing that I'm not doing anything and you will see what I'm doing. But they weren't just simply to look, they were to see, and even that see is a sort of a weak way of expressing it, because they were to pay attention. That's really what's going on with uh, how this verb functions within this sentence. They're to pay attention, they're to ponder, they're to think about this. And so it's not just perceiving with the eyes, but it's then from then from there going on to consider it with one's mind. And if they do in fact consider it, they will be astounded, which is repeated for emphasis. Not only will you be slightly astounded, you'll be very astounded by what you see. Let's think about this for a moment, which is what we're called to do. They were focused so much on the dumpster fire that had become Judah that they had lost track of what was going on in the wider world around them. And we're prone to do the same sort of thing. We're prone to focus on um, what's going on most closely to ourselves and neglect what God is doing in the larger scheme of things. And so while I don't often do this, I think I should do this, 
I'm, I'm encouraging you to actually pay attention to the media. But I'm going to qualify that. Okay? I'm going to qualify that. I want you to wisely pay attention to the media. Perhaps going to uh, things like BBC that, that have a wider perspective on what's going on in the world. A lot of times, American media is a very American-focused, and that's good because if they're reporting on national news, that's good. But you don't often find out what's going on in the wider world. And we should pay attention to what's going on in the wider world. So there's my qualification of all of that. Don't avoid knowing what's going on, but uh, be aware of what's going on, but also think about what is going on. Oswald Chambers notes that to think is an effort. To think rightly is a great effort. And to think as a Christian ought to think is the greatest effort of a human soul. And so, yes, I'm asking you to invest a lot of energy, but not only your energy, but in dependence upon God. Father, help me to understand what's going on in the world. Help me to understand the how these things are connected to one another, to understand what you are doing in your world so I can trust you. Now, the particular things that God wanted Israel, or Judah, rather, to look at was, I am raising up the Chaldeans. I think we might have our map from before coming back this week. It is in your notes. And we note their rapid rise to power. Uh, They're moving from the east to the west in this fun little map that we have over here. Okay, Babylonia coming out of Ur, and they're moving uh, farther west into Mesopotamia. They're taking care of the Assyrians and, and working their way through the Assyrian cities, okay, that particularly are seats of power, their capitals. They had more than one capital, okay? And the, Assyrian, the Assyrians are being pushed out by the Neo-Babylonian Empire, which had arisen, as I said, quickly. The, Jew, the people of Judah were to remember from the Scriptures in numerous places that all nations belong to God. It wasn't just they belong to God, but God was the Lord over all of the nations. And that what is going on matters. That there is no, ra- no nation that rises nor falls apart from the will or purpose of God. And so we could say, with, from that perspective, that the rise of the United States was according to the will of God. That doesn't mean America is in a special privileged relationship with God. It's just a matter of the fact that God raises up nations and casts down nations. God raises up kings and casts down kings. And so we see the demise of Venezuela right now, and we go, well, God is at work to accomplish that through these human means. The rise of China that has been taking place is according to the will and purpose of God, even if we don't understand the particular will and purpose of God in doing that. And so the rise of the the Neo-Babylonian Empire was not an accident. 
It was not by chance. It was not by circumstance. It was not solely by the will and determination of the Chaldeans. But God was at work to raise them up. He's claiming that for Himself because all nations belong to Him. That nation was going to have a significant bearing upon the situation that Habakkuk has been lamenting within Judah. It's not just the fact that there are headlines if they had a paper that came in, the Jerusalem Post. Okay, It wouldn't just say, uh, Babylon takes another Assyrian city. Okay, It's going to have soon a direct bearing upon life in Judah. It's not just out there. We, as Christians, like the people of Judah, don't realize how different nations and different uh, movements will impact the church. For instance, who would have thunk that the effect of Nazi Germany upon America, but also just upon the church, particularly in Europe, and how... uh, compromise with the Nazis severely uh, damaged large portions of the church, both Protestant and Catholic, in Europe. And so these events shape the life for the church in many places over time. And so really, how to answer that question of was his complaint valid, it would be no, precisely because God works in unexpected places. In this text, he's working in Chaldea or Babylon, but God continues to work in unexpected places. But what in the world does Babylon have to do with Habakkuk's prayer? Uh, Not only that, but Habakkuk, like the rest of us, seems to have um, an idea of what justice will look like, and does God's bringing forth of justice conform to Habakkuk's idea of justice. So there's almost two questions I'm sneaking in here for my second point. So let's look at how he describes Babylon to sort of unpack some of this. He describes Babylon as bitter, a bitter and hasty nation. They're aggressive. They're impatient. They strike fast. In a sense, they're the opposite of the Chinese, at least of what I hear about the Chinese. You know, like they have a 300-year plan to take over the world. The Babylonians were more like, we have a one-year plan to take over the world for 300 years. Okay? (laughs) They wanted to accomplish everything quickly. They were not, not patient. They were volatile. They struck fast. And he mentions why they were feared. They also were a predatory nation in the, fa- in the reality of striking fast and hard. And he kind of lays it out in three pictures that are very interesting. Their horses are faster than leopards. That's an interesting comparison. Uh, horses and leopards are very different. Uh, leopards tend to stalk and pounce. Okay. 
They, they're as a big cat, they act like normal cats, as I'm discovering with the having a kitten in the house. Uh, but this is much worse, of course. Uh, but they stalk their prey, thinking their prey is not noticing that they're there, and then boom. That's part of the picture that he wants them to see. Uh, leopards are very opportunistic. They get the, the critter that ain't paying attention. But when they have to, they can run quite fast, up to 36 miles per hour. Not as fast as the cheetah, but a whole lot faster than me. I'm not out running a leopard. So I'm dead meat. I'm, I'm like that guy in Colorado who had to kill it with his own hands that mountain lion. I'm not doing that. <laughs> I think I'm a goner. <laughs> okay. Second word picture that he produces, that they are more fierce than evening wolves. Wolves, of course, tend to attack in packs. And uh, that is their ferocity precisely because they're hungry. Evening wolves, you know, for them, it's time for breakfast. And so they're on the prowl and they're ready to eat. And boy, can they eat. An adult wolf can consume up to one-fifth of their body weight in a meal. So they're not snacking. This is the idea of a fierce wolf that is hungry um, and ready to consume. And very, therefore, as a result, dangerous. Third picture that he gives is like an eagle swift to devour the idea of sort of swooping down out of nowhere. You know, that little rabbit that's just kind of, sorry, I shouldn't have mentioned rabbits. Um, that, um, that snake that's just minding, it thinks, minding its own business, slithering along on the ground, you know. And then out of nowhere, boom, there's the eagle picking it up, carrying it away to consume it. That's what the Babylonians are like. They're opportunistic and they strike without warning, without you realizing what's happening. Suddenly, they're upon you and your destruction is imminent. But there's more to this. All three of these animals that are listed here are found in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 as unclean animals. Okay? Precisely because they're predators and the way that they consume their prey. And so we're to understand that, that the Babylonians are an unclean nation that devours other nations. So not only are they dangerous, but they're unclean, unwashed, unwelcome in the presence of God. They're the goy. Not only that, but we see that their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Meaning, they're self-exalting, they're self-important, they're all about Babylon. This is, in a sense, the ultimate of nationalism. All other nations exist for them. They're narcissistic in many ways. But it's not just their dignity that goes forth from them, but their justice goes forth from them. And that should remind us of what we heard, uh, what we read last week from Habakkuk's complaint, that justice on the one hand didn't go out, but when justice did go out, it was twisted and, ter and, and perverted. And here it's perverted because it goes forth from them, their understanding of justice, a justice that benefits them 
is what really is at work here. They were, in a sense, a law unto themselves. If you were to think about this in terms of uh, Jehoiakim and what was going on in Judah, they're, on, they're him on steroids. Okay, They're even more unjust. They're even more self-absorbed than Jehoiakim himself was. That phrase, might makes right, really sounded good to them because they were the one who had the might. And they exercised it. Not only were they powerful and dangerous, but they were also mockers. Here we see they're mockers of kings. They're mockers of leaders or nobles. They're mockers even of fortresses. Ha <laughs> ha, you call that a fortress? It's, it's, there's no one that can stand in their way. And in a sense, it reminds me of the uh, professional wrestlers I used to watch in my youth with the heel, of course, who mocks all of the other people. That's them. They're proud. They're arrogant. They put everyone else down. They're dangerous. Part of why they mocked even the fortresses was because of their siege ramps and battering rams, which had already made short work of Asher, of Nimrod, and Nineveh, the capitals of Assyria. Now, typically a siege of a city like Nineveh would be a long, drawn-out affair, and yet somehow the, the Babylonians had, had been able to quickly vanquish all of these cities. And now they're going to look toward Jerusalem. I think we have a, a, a picture of Jerusalem here. And you get, what you see is the, the, the main wall, and then you have towers on the wall, and then you've got these other uh, smaller walls that extend the fences out you have trenches and slopes, and all of these are designed to make it increasingly difficult for you to conquer the city, for you to penetrate beyond the inner wall and kill the population within. The Babylonians look at this and laugh. And all of your best fortifications, all of your best ideas are going to be no match for their battering rams and their towers, and their catapults, whatever they had, these siege weapons will make short work of your city. This passage is therefore, in a sense, filled with incredible irony because it's, it is this violent, unjust people that are going to be God's means of justice towards the violent unjust nation of Judah. They're going to be out-Judahed by the Babylonians. And it's all going to be because of God. This ferocity is going to be poured out upon Judah. It's, it's not going to be like the Russians who land on the island looking for a boat so they can go home humanized because one Russian sailor falls in love with one of the young ladies who lives on the island. There'll be none of that. It will be death and destruction for Judah. 
if anyone goes back to Babylon with them, it's not be, be going to be because they've fallen in love. It's because they've been gathered like a handful of sand as a captive. This is no pretty glorious thing. Habakkuk, in terms of his expectations, most likely expected God to raise up a new king from the midst of Judah to take the place of this puppet of the Egyptians who was unjust. That was most likely his expectation of God's justice. God replaced the king. God toppled the king. Put someone who is wise and holy and just in that place. We want a Davidic king. And what God is doing is God is sending the Babylonians instead. He gets God raising up a foreign power to devastate Judah for its apostasy. That's what justice is actually going to look like for Habakkuk. There's the reason we read from Deuteronomy 28 this morning as well as Acts 13, and that is because what is taking place or is about to take place in Judah is the, uh, the manifestation of the covenant curses. God had told them in Deuteronomy 28, when you disobey me, it's going to be the escalating curses that will come that will call you to repentance. And if you don't repent, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And so now we're reaching the apex of those covenant curses because they've refused to repent. And what Habakkuk supplies that is not found in Deuteronomy 28 is who that foreign nation will be. It's going to be the Babylonians. They are going to be the ones that remove you from the land just as you previously removed the Canaanites for their wickedness. Now you, Judah, will be removed from the land because of your wickedness. This is indeed an incredibly hard word that comes to them from Habakkuk. We are not talking here about the sins of weakness uh, that you can read about in our quote from John Newton. These are not the things for which you tend to be sorry for, but really these are the sins that the people of Judah had embraced and enjoyed that had hardened them in their apostasy. And so we see in answer to our two questions that God works justice in unexpected ways. Not simply in unexpected places like Babylon, but also in unexpected ways through Babylon. So that's the original meaning of kind of what's going on here. But I don't want to leave you with just that. That would be downright depressing. Justice is in fact scary when we realize that we are the guilty party. That's when we stop asking for justice and start crying for mercy. Do we have any hope in the light of justice? Now, Habakkuk is going to be asking that question later on, but I want us to also ask that question now uh, in light of what has happened in Christ Jesus since this was written. 
This, of course, uh, is before Christ. It's before the cross. And Paul utilizes this text in his sermon uh, in Antioch, Pisidia. And that's one of those places that uh, we often don't know where it is. It's not a famous place. Uh, we got a little map up here. Okay. Uh, this is Asia Minor, what we now call Turkey. Okay. Uh, some of those names are familiar. Uh, Lystra, Derby, Tarsus, where Paul himself was from. Well, right smack dab in the middle, right there, we have Antioch. It's not to be confused with the Antioch in Syria, uh, where Paul and Barnabas were sent from as missionaries. This is a place they go to, and as we see from Acts 13, they begin by preaching in the, in the synagogue, which was their custom, and then things uh, looked initially great and then went south rather quickly there in uh, Antioch of Pisidia. Okay. What Paul, his, what his sermon in the synagogue does is very similar to what we find here in Habakkuk chapter 1, and that he's explaining that God was at work in a very unexpected way in the life and ministry of Jesus the Messiah that he was at work in a way that no one had expected, that he would experience justice, judgment, death that others had deserved. Now, it was there in the Old Testament, but not necessarily understood to applying to a singular person. Oftentimes, passages like Isaiah 53 were were understood by the Jews as as referring to the whole people, so they would suffer for their sins and then everything would be okay. But we read that He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And so there is a distinction made between the servant of God and the people of God. That there is one who suffers in their place. And by that person's wounds, the people are healed. They didn't expect this of the Messiah to die, but that's what God brought about. We see Peter writes about this same thing, using the passage in Isaiah 53 and 1 Peter chapter 2, 24 and 25. That's how he understands the suffering of Jesus. He understands it as the suffering of Messiah to bring peace to God's people, to bring uh, restoration, to heal the broken wounds and broken hearts that his people endured because of sin. How does this take place? We see in Galatians 3 how this takes place. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Because disobedience to the law, just as we see in Deuteronomy 28, brings a curse. For it is written, Paul says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. So we recognize, or should recognize, that sin brings punishment or curse. Someone has to suffer because of sin. But the problem with our sin is that the punishment is death. And because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that means that all of us should die. Which means God would have no people but Jesus, the only one who never sinned. 
Do you see the quandary? God's answer in verse 13 of Galatians 3 is Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So we see him who knew no sin becoming sin, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus takes the curse that we earned, bears it upon himself, and then he can, and Paul continues, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles so that they might receive the promised spirit by faith. And so not only does Jesus take away the guilt and condemnation that we have earned, but Jesus also then gives us the blessings that He has earned by His own obedience for us. And that's an important thing for us to keep in mind. Think of it this way. This week I went to lunch with another pastor and lo and behold, he knew the waitress who was also the manager of the restaurant that day. So what happened is, got a free meal, okay, for which I am thankful. The only reason I got the free meal is because I was with the other guy. If I was in there by myself, I'd be paying my, you know, 10 to 15 dollars, whatever it was, the tip, okay? I wouldn't have been paying that. I was, I was prepared to pay it. I had the resources to pay it, Okay. Uh, I was able to pay my debt that was incurred by enjoying the tasty uh, French toast that I had and bacon. Honey-covered bacon. <laughs> and so we, we see two things. My, my union, so to speak, I received the benefits from this other guy that I know, but there's also a relieving of my debt to the restaurant. Okay, But in this case, it was a small debt. And as I, as I mentioned, it's a debt that I was ready, willing, and able to pay. Here's the reality of our forgiveness from God. It only happens if you're with Jesus by faith. If you're not connected to Jesus, you don't get the grace. It only comes in Him. So if you're not seated at the table with Jesus, so to speak, you're not getting the forgiveness that God extends. Not only that, but the debt is not something that you are ready, willing, or able to pay. It is far beyond your capacity to pay that debt. And the payment of that debt would terrify you and should terrify you. How much more should we be grateful that the debt has been paid if we believe in Jesus Christ? How much more should He be endeared to you because of His willingness to pay the debt you can't pay? We were in the car listening to the radio, and I often don't like listening to the Christian stations. Okay. Get a little sappy for me. I'm, I'm cynical. 
Uh, but they had this one guy who had called in, and he had had, I can't remember what it was, but he had racked up a very large hospital bill. I think it was about $60,000. And he knew he couldn't pay it. And so he had decided that, you know, it was the day for him to go in, talk to the people in accounting, try and set up the $20 a month payment plan, and, uh, you know, have this until he dies, basically. And he arrives, and the woman says, I have good news for you. A charity paid your debt. You don't owe us a thing. And he just wept and danced with joy and all of that kind of stuff. That's kind of the response we ought to have with a debt we couldn't pay. Uh, That someone whom we didn't even ask stepped in to take the debt for us. So be filled with joy you who believe in Christ, those of you who don't, you can. (laughs) He makes that offer, the free offer of the gospel. Receive by faith and faith alone. Jesus was in fact raised from the dead and forgiveness of sin is preached in His name, which Paul talks about. Paul's audience initially was filled with scoffers, people who were not believing what God had done to save sinners. But there was something even greater that was going on, not in uh, Antioch, Pisidia, but back in Jerusalem. There was a a judgment that was going to come upon Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Another Babylon going by the name of Rome was coming to bring judgment on Jerusalem for their unbelief and for their wickedness. The Covenant curses of Deuteronomy 28 were about to come upon their heads in their fullness. Paul was preaching now to the Gentiles because they were rejoicing with the news of salvation. So there's this one question is, do you rejoice with the news of of salvation through Jesus Christ. But I I can't just leave it at that. Because there's still more that's kind of going on. We recognize that though we're pardoned, the visible church is still full of sinners, both weak sinners who turn from their sin, you know, but also hardened sinners who continue in their sin that church discipline hasn't caught up with yet, shall we say, or, or you know, isn't aware of at this point. The repentant find this mercy in Jesus Christ, but what, what happens when congregations and churches in a nation become filled with these hardened sinners? Peter anticipated this. We have these words in 1 Peter 4, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? There's a sense in which God continues to chastise the church because the visible church is not a pure church. As we see from the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 to 3. 
Judgment begins with the visible church when she is hardened by sin. When she refuses to turn away from sin, but continues to indulge in it. It's rather interesting when I was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones on this passage. And remember, this is the 1950s. And he thought not of Babylon, but he was thinking of communism as God's chastisement, particularly upon the churches uh, in England and uh, Europe. Which makes me wonder, if Martin Lloyd-Jones was an American living in 2019, what movements might he say have been raised up by God in order to chastise us, to reveal our sin, so that we as a church can repent? It's worth thinking about. Some of those things that we curse, uh, those movements that we want no part of, may in fact have been raised up by God to deal with our sin, our refusal to love people who are sinners. But we see that Christ unexpectedly satisfied justice to bestow mercy. And you should show mercy on me if you have my notes and correct my typo. It should be unexpectedly. That's an adverb, folks. God is not blind to the injustice and violence that we see and that we call attention attention to, that we point out. He's at work, however, where we tend not to look. God brings justice in unlikely and unexpected ways. In the historical context, this meant that the Babylonians were coming, and they were not coming looking for some help. They were God's chosen instrument to punish Judah for its rebellion and its apostasy. God works in the unexpected place of Galilee. An unimportant place, to say the least. To prepare a Messiah who would pay for our sins in an unexpected way through His death and subsequent resurrection. Those who refuse to turn away from their disobedience and rebellion will receive what they deserve. Those who do turn away and seek refuge in Jesus will receive what Jesus deserves. Blessing. And so Jesus is able to turn the Babylonians are coming, the Babylonians are coming, into something more like the Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. Not all that fearful at all. Let's pray. Grant, Almighty God, that since You put around us so many terrors, we may know that we ought to be awakened and to resist the sloth and tardiness of our sinful nature so that You may strengthen us by a different confidence and that we may lean on Your aid, that we may boldly triumph over our enemies and never doubt, but that You will give us the victory over all of the assaults of Satan and the wicked and may also that we look to You that our faith may wholly rest on that eternal 
an immutable covenant which has been confirmed for us by the blood of your only Son until we shall at length be united to him who is our head after having passed through all the miseries of the present life and having been gathered into that eternal inheritance which your Son has purchased for us by his own blood. We ask this in his name. Amen.